Hello, everybody. This is the Third Fridays podcast, the October edition. My name is Christian Cison, and I do not have any guests today, which probably means that viewership and listenership are going way, way down, uh, knowing that everybody's just going to listen to me uh, get on a soapbox and talk about workers' comp, right? My favorite thing in the world. Um, I'm going to say a little thing about schedule loss of use. Uh, and how it uh, has changed more recently this month with respect to a new form that the New York board has come out with. Uh, I'm also going to relate it to our Monday New York webinar series where we talked about getting the most out of our IMEs. So a little interplay with that and then throw in a little uh, shade into, uh, on this uh, new law that we uh, have been really promoting where we take a credit for non-scheduled permanent partial disability uh, classification cases. So let's start with where we were uh, as, a, as an area of law and industry at the uh, 2018 decision of Teher versus Yoda Taxi. Now, if you want to listen specifically about uh, my analysis of that decision with uh, my host, at, uh, my co-host at the time, uh, Andrea Abudaya, uh, that is another episode of the podcast that you can certainly listen to for some background. I'm going to assume you don't want to do that, which is perfectly fine. Uh, brief background in that case, uh, there were schedule and non-schedule body parts established. The claimant had returned to work without a reduced earnings claim, so we expected, obviously, or we ex we would expect in that type of case uh, for the claimant to pursue the schedule loss of use award, which he did. The law judge, however, found non-schedule impairment, and the claimant appealed. The board panel disagreed with the claimant's appeal, arguing that the claimant could not receive both a classification of a non-schedule site and a schedule loss of use award for the schedule body part. So the claimant went to the appellate division who sided with the claimant and remanded the case back. Uh, and the interesting part about that was that uh, part, uh, a portion of the decision had sentences in uh, from the appellate division that said a claimant could receive a non-schedule classification and a schedule loss of use award. He could not receive a schedule loss of use award and a non-schedule award. So it really depended on work status, the monetary nature of an award versus a finding of a classification, and really what the parties at the time wished to do to close the case. And the aftermath of that decision allowed uh, both defense and claimant to decide how was this case going to be resolved pursuant to their interests. And there was a lot of openings in the law to decide whether or not we were going to close via schedule loss of use and keep non-schedule uh, sites closed via no further causally related disability, or do we pursue uh, no, uh, causally related disability to non-schedule permanent injury sites because it affected the monetary nature of exposure. And while all of this was being figured out, right, the board earlier this month issued a schedule loss of use stipulation attachment. Now, if you take a look at it, there's a subject number, a frequently asked questions website, and the actual attachment itself, right? And the idea of this is that it allows the claimant to be made aware of the impact of closing his or her case by schedule loss of use when there is non-schedule permanent partial disability at play. So the board has outlined three circumstances where this would be apparent. 
The first is when there's no medical report from either party regarding permanency to the established non-scheduled sites. The second is where the board contains affirmative medical or evidence of permanency to the sites. Or the third, where the medical reports from the parties differ on whether there is permanency to the non-scheduled sites. This now requires the schedule loss of use attachment to be signed by all parties and finalized by the board. And the biggest impact of this has to do with the credit. So how do we figure out what we want? I think it really comes down to cost benefit analysis and the discretionary decision we have when it comes to closing the file. How do we want to close a file from a defense perspective? Do we want to close it so that the claimant has no avenue for reopening? Or do we want to close a portion of it because we know that is there is a high likelihood of not reopening the case? And nuanced uh, individuals or, or really experienced professionals in this, in this industry will tell you that there are interests on both sides. One side will say a closed case is a closed case. And I tend to side with that, uh, that uh, argument, right? If we can close a case in any fashion, then it takes it off the radar and allows us to focus on the more open cases. So if we are an employer or a carrier that wants to close a case via schedule laws of use, but there is non-schedule permanency, we now have a better way to do it. Instead of litigating to get to the point where a judge can agree that there is no non-schedule permanency, the parties now have an avenue to make that agreement without a response from the board to kick that stipulation back as long as the claimant is on board. And think about that for a second. As a necessary party of interest, the stipulation attachment puts further notice to the claimant that, hey, you have to want to do this too. And that's actually a good thing, right? Because so often we push schedule loss of use closures and we don't know from a defense perspective if the claimant truly wants this. Maybe the claimant sees dollar signs, those green dreams that we all have from time to time, and forgets about what the impact that would be. Meaning if you have non-schedule permanent injuries, that schedule loss of use award is going to be credited if you ever lose time from work after the schedule loss of use agreement. And can, you cannot get early money because it's being credited. Right? So that argument that side of the table to closing cases really wins out with this case because now the claimant is aware of the high likelihood that a claim will not be reopened unless there is voluminous evidence to override it so the language that we're putting in stipulation agreements is actually helped by the stipulation attachment which has a series of questions that the claimant must answer We'll get to those questions in a second. But now let's talk about the other side. The other side is less common, where we have schedule and non-schedule body parts involved. And we are of the position that if the claimant is doing his job, 
Uh, he's interacting with a lot of his coworkers who can theoretically testify for the defense in a future uh, wage loss claim and doesn't present the likelihood of being out of work for the accident reasons. Maybe there's a retirement coming up. Maybe the plant is shutting down at a specific location. Uh, maybe there's another reason why work is going to end for this claimant at some point in the future that we are confident we won't have to pay a wage loss claim after the return to work is over. In that circumstance, we know that claimants who are represented will push for a schedule loss of use evaluation in pursuit of an award. And in order to do that, they have in the past come to an agreement with defense to either waive permanency or find uh, no FCRD to those sites and collect the money uh, and call it a day. But what if we don't want to do that, right? I've uh, been on plenty of roadshow, uh, seen uh, clients who tell me that their biggest problem in their claim population is the schedule loss of use cases for individuals who don't lose a lick of a day of work. An arm strain suddenly turns into 90 degrees of abduction one year later, resulting in 40% schedule loss of use of the arm when that person uses that arm to do his or her job every single day. And for those types of cases, if a back injury is involved, that type of employer or that type of carrier may not want to close on schedule loss of use. So how do we make the most of that position? How do we use that position to drive home a closure? We now have to use our own intellect with an IME and push the closure in a way that meets our goals. Now I say that uh, and I, I, I hear myself back and thinking, I'm automatically thinking, well, there goes undue influence. We're talking to an IME. That's not what I mean. I, I, I mean that IMEs should be asking certain questions that you want answered and not the stock cover letter or the degree of disability questions uh, that we're used to. But if we know that a schedule loss of use attachment now needs our participation, including the claimant as well, but also is required when there is evidence of permanency to non-schedule sites, what does that tell us? Well, we can produce permanency of non-scheduled sites. And when we do that, now you have a foot in the water. Now you have an ability to close the claim in a way that you see fit. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to come without risk, right? And this is why there are so few of us on that side of the aisle. When we do that, and when we push non-schedule permanency, we are impliedly making the argument that lost time in the future will now receive a classification award. We can always raise unrelated wage loss for the reasons we uh, went over earlier, such as the closing of a plant or a, a voluntary retirement. But making the argument that non-schedule permanency exists is certainly risky, and that's why there are so few people on that side, right? A 1% loss of wage earning capacity 
means 225 weeks at $150 a week, minimum, based on the average weekly wage. That's indemnity, right? So closing that file, once that hits, puts you at a five-figure minimum to close. It may not hit you in the short term because the claimant is working, but should that problem arise, you are now realizing that risk. And you're also making that argument in front of the claimant at trial, which could give him or her the idea to take time off as a result of the accident. So that there are few people on that aisle, but nonetheless, that makes sense, right? It's trading future exposure for current uh, benefit, right? So I wanted to make clear that IMEs have a lot of importance in pursuing the goals that we want. Obvious, obvious, right? Defense attorney saying IMEs are important. But for this specific topic, we want to make sure that pointed questions provided to the IME are actually being answered to achieve our goals. So we have two sets of ways to close it now. And now let's, and, and let's, let's assess uh, the questions in the stipulation attachment, right? So this stipulation attachment makes it first and foremost clear that it's not a Section 32 agreement, right? So the claimant will now know that even though I'm getting this lump sum, right, my case isn't uh, at a final resolution. If anybody wants to hit pause on this podcast and pull it up, uh, be my guest. It's going to be a lot easier to follow along. But I'm going to point us to question number four. When the board says, is it accurate to say that the impairment to your non-scheduled sites is quiescent, meaning that all of the following are true? You are not currently actively treating for the condition, and your medical treatment uh, provider has not indicated to you that active treatment or surgery is anticipated, unless evidence so shows surgery is medically counterindicated. Now, if you're a claimant and you say no to that, your schedule loss of use case is not going to be automatically granted, right? This attachment is not for boxes to be checked and award to be made, okay? So let's keep those topics in mind and we'll go to question five. Question five is only answered if the medical provider has opined permanency to a non-scheduled site, right? And that doesn't say IME there, it says treating medical provider. So from a claimant's perspective, they're asking, is it accurate to say that with respect to your non-scheduled sites or conditions that your medical provider opines a permanent impairment does not affect your ability to work and there has been no surgery or post-surgical care for at least the past 12 months and you have not actively treated for the conditions for at least six months. If you say no to any one of those questions, now bringing a total of these options to five between questions four and five, the schedule loss agreement is now going before a law judge. So desk review stipulations are not guaranteed anymore, which means the claimant has to give up his rights or her rights if it's going to go to desk review. And if we think about that from a big picture perspective, 
from the defense side, it's a little bit more costly to keep the claim open when we're not getting a desk review schedule loss of use determination because we're going to have a hearing. And whenever you have a hearing, there's a risk of an appeal. But for the purposes of realizing the risk that a claim will be reopened, the long-term benefit of those two questions are very important because now the claimant is going to be asked actively to know what this means when he or she is doing this. If we go to the end of the questions, the last question, number 10, is in bold, right? A question in bold means I should read it more than once. Read it very carefully, right? Do you understand that any future lost time you experience will be subject to a credit for the amount you received as a result of the schedule loss of use award and that no further awards for lost time will be paid until the credit is exhausted? And that's where we stand because we all know of a case in our lifetime where a schedule loss of use award was paid out and a non-schedule body part was used to reopen the claim. And although the, if the agreement was written carefully and if all the extenuating circumstances are developed at trial, it's going to be very straightforward whether or not this credit applies. But we're now asking claimants to understand the risks of closing early as opposed to keeping it open. Again, I, I truly believe that workers' compensation is designed to compensate those claimants that deserve it and deny compensation to those that don't. And in that system, if we take that theoretical construct, despite how unbelievable that may sound when we talk about the practice of New York workers' compensation, the long-term benefit of having a claimant understand that aspect is very, very important because we're not after the green dream. We're not after the quick fix. We're after knowledge and realization that a risk is decreased. And from a defense perspective, the more that you can quantify the risk, the better off you are at making an educated decision. Now, the credit is gone into a lot further detail uh, with an example that the board uses to have the claimant understand what that means. Essentially, the lump sum award that is allowed with a schedule loss of use determination will now allow a carrier to take credit for the weekly payments associated with that award if non-schedule lost time is applied in the future. Again, this is a very straightforward issue if all the facts are developed at trial, but having the claimant understand it puts everyone in a better position. So we talked about a post to hair world that is the third department case in 2018 that sent everybody into a tailspin, uh, which was quite, quite comical because it allowed law judges at the most basic administrative level. And forgive me for saying basic. A lot of, a lot of law judges in New York, despite their decisions, uh, are not basic. They are uh, well-intentioned. Some of them are fair, right? But this harrowing third department decision resulted in law judges making decisions, applying law to facts, you know, like a real judge, right? And uh, it created appeals on both sides. 
and the board has finally stepped in and given us some feedback and some analysis on how these cases can be closed, right? Tying that in to this development of making a claimant more aware of the risks and circumstances involved, we are now at a position where we can determine what is best for us on the defense side, what is best for us on an employer side, on a carrier side, on any risk professional side that closes the case in a manner that meets our goals and our interests. That is the best way to do business because the unknowns that are out there are the ones that keep us up at night, right? There are about 10 to 15 cases I know of, at least the board number by heart. Wake up every morning, check that case, figure out what's been filed that day, that morning. And those are the cases with those unknowns. So to take that out of our claim population, put them in with a general population where we can monitor them on a more diaried and routine basis allows us to do all of our jobs better. How does that actually tie in to getting the most out of your IME? Well, you have to decide which side of the aisle are you on, right? How do we want to close the case? Do we want to close the case with a green dream or a quick fix? We have to do it now with additional forms that provide the claimant with an opportunity uh, to be heard, which I think is fair. If we want to use the fact that the claimant is working without reduced earnings at full duty, using all the affected body parts uh, the same way he or she did pre-accident, that's where an IME will come in because we know that the stipulation attachment will be pushed, that a schedule loss of use evaluation will be pursued, and that's how you would use the IME to set you up. Now, finally, I did mention the new law uh, that we've been promoting here at Lois. Uh, it was announced in April of 2017 as part of a bill uh, calling for a two-and-a-half-year timeline where a self-executing credit is arguably applied to an eventual classification. A big step for employers and carriers in New York not without its exceptions, and I won't get into too much detail about when and how they exist. We have uh, several webinars and podcasts on that, so please feel free to check those out. But as far as using an IME to our advantage, using getting the most out of an IME, and factoring in the update of the Schedule Loss of Use Stipulation Attachment, the credit from the two, the two and a half year timeline and associated credit is now at a place that risk can be valued, right? If we make the argument that non-schedule permanency exists, the new law is going to be used either for you or against you. Meaning, against you because there may not be a hundred or two and a half years of awards, there may not be two and a half years since the accident that would allow for the credit to, to uh, apply. And you have to do a true, true case-by-case -case analysis, right? Look at the attorney who's, who's saying case-by-case -case and not willing to give you general advice, right? Very, very funny. Uh, it's very important 
though, to, to understand the seriousness of how that goes to, goes together, right? Um, making the implication that someone has a non-scheduled classification and intending to use it because the claimant is working at full duty with no reduced earnings now has an added element of whether or not we can use a credit to push non-scheduled classification and the attenuating risk that the claimant will lose time from work as a result of the accident sometime down the road. So where this closure outside of full and final agreement becomes reopened down the, down the road. Now, what's, what's the best way to close? Everybody knows that it's a full and final Section 32 agreement. Uh, gets us all out of this risk. It's the only claim or the only type of agreement where we know there is zero risk in a reopener. And if I want to be very, very sure, it's not technically zero, right? Section 123 allows any party to request a reopening of any issue, right? It's that catch-all uh, section that allows the board to hear an issue. But if it's not going to hear an issue, it's going to be a Section 32 agreement. That's the most likely issue that's not going to be touched as long as all the timeline requirements are met. That is the final analysis in light of where we are on the aisle, what side we're on. If instead of associating the risk with each one, can we do a full and final agreement? Can we tack on a little bit more for future medical and close the case forever? Of course, right? That's a whole different argument. Another case-by-case -case analysis that involves work status, uh, current coverage periods, um, and, and dollar cost, right? Uh, Medicare eligibility, MSAs, CMS, all that uh, drama, <laughs> for lack of a better term, to give us more reasons to think about whether schedule loss of use closure is the right way to go. I think that's a lot of information. Uh, I, I, I think that we should actually turn this podcast off and enjoy October. It's a time of year where the weather doesn't even know what it's doing, but we enjoy wearing sweatshirts, at least I do. Um, Yankees are still playing. That's a good thing for New Yorkers everywhere, even Mets fans, because then they'll have something to gripe about. So for the October edition of Third Fridays, my name is Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one. I'll see you next month.